Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this class from our Equip Ministry will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. This is the end of uh, Ezra, where uh, we really see the law come up here in these last two chapters. So well, we'll get into it here. Um, so the big issue that happens here is uh, the Israelites intermarry with the nations around them. So in the law, they're commanded not to do that. Uh, so let's go look at Deuteronomy, sorry, Exodus. We're going to look at the Exodus one. Uh, and look at the first time they went into the promised land, what the directions were for them as they went in. So Exodus 34. And Exodus 34, verse 11. We'll read through 16. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite, the Perizzite and the Hivite, the Jebusite and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods. And one of them invites you, and you eat of his sacrifice. And you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. So from the beginning of the Israelites heading into the promised land, They were instructed not to intermarry with other uh, people groups. So this was especially an issue back then because uh, what it points out here, because of the idolatry. You very much, whatever nationality you were, that's uh, what you worshipped. You know, religion was a national thing, even for Israel. So I'm not going to work through all those points you see there, but... Uh, Israel was called to be a holy nation, a nation set apart to God, and so they were not to intermarry with other nations um, for the concern that they would be drawn away to worship other gods. And so today, this isn't as much an issue for us. Um, We don't need to worry about, you know, marrying someone of a different skin color or something like that. That's not an issue because... uh, race and uh, religion don't connect as closely today. I'm sure there's still parts of the world where that would be a concern. Um, And I think this aligns well even with the instructions in the New Testament, like in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, where Paul says, uh, you know, what fellowship does light have with darkness? You know, why would you marry someone who's not a believer? It's still kind of the same issue uh, that was pointed out to Israel is you don't want to marry someone who's a non-believer. So Israel didn't end up being all believers, and so it ended up being non-believing Israelites marrying pagans, 
Um, but today in the church and as believers, we want to make sure that we're marrying someone who is a believer so that light marries light. So uh, it was a big deal for Israel because it was a covenant-breaking act. They were sinning against God in a direct way that he had instructed them as the people set apart to be a light to the nations, um, as Israel was to uh, keep all the, the covenant ritual laws um, to show what God was like, they were instructed not to intermarry because they'd be led away. So we see this in the life of Solomon, for instance, uh, where the kings specifically were told not to take foreign wives, and he did that, and it says that his heart um, was led astray by his foreign wives' gods. So as we get into Ezra 9 and 10, this is the issue at hand, is the people of Israel are intermarrying with pagan people, um, and that's bad. So as we jump in, I wanted to ask if you've ever had a situation where uh, you've had someone you're working with, and you just wanted to rip your hair out. <laughs> because of the way they were handling it, or maybe you wanted to rip their hair out. <laughs> I was leaving it vague, but if you want to be specific, uh, yes. So actually, one of our sons bit another, one of his brother's hair the other day and like ripped out a chunk. So this does happen in real life, turns out. But in Ezra 9 and 10, uh, Ezra, when he hears the news of, you know, think about them, they've just gotten back to the land, and now the people are jumping right back into the sin that led them astray 80 years before, um, before their captivity. So when Ezra hears the news of this, when it comes to him, he starts tearing out his own hair. He's, he's mourning and uh, just brokenhearted over this as uh, one of the leaders of Israel. So this is a common issue that comes up again and again with Israel. So actually at the end of Nehemiah, uh, the Israelites do the same thing again. And Nehemiah, he's a different kind of leader. Instead of tearing his own hair out, he tore their hair out. So if you want to read about that, that's in Nehemiah 13, 23 through 31. So maybe that resonates with some of us uh, more than the tearing our own hair out, but I think there's circumstances that bring on both. But they felt this strongly, and Ezra especially, as we'll see here, he is a strong leader, but in the face of the people running away from the Lord again, he withdraws. Uh, he's very, um, he wants to be alone and he, he gives a little bit of direction, but from amongst the crowd out there of Israelites who are um, either haven't sinned in this way or are repenting, uh, he kind of lets them take the lead in some things. So there's voices from the floor that are like, hey, this is what we should do. And Ezra's like, yeah, go do that. <laughs> and then he's like, uh, he kind of gets a group of guys together and delegates them to go do some things, and then he withdraws by himself and mourns some more. And so when he, as a leader, has people uh, sinning underneath him and before the Lord, 
he's a leader that withdraws um, and doesn't, you know, like this is the direction we need to go to make it better. So I think there's just different kinds of people. I think Nehemiah is more of a, you know, you need to repent, <laughs> uh, which may not be good either, but I don't know. So <laughs> the Bible doesn't tell us if one is good or the other, uh, better than the other. But when we pick up in chapter 9, about five months has passed since they, uh, Ezra's group arrived back in Jerusalem. So we'll start reading in verse 1. When these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, so this is Ezra talking, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites has, have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So what we'll see today is that the people rebel against God, and then in chapter 10, uh, they repent in fear. And uh, in chapter 9, we see Ezra mourning the sin of Israel, and then in chapter 10, we'll see all of Israel mourning. But in these first two verses, we see is that Ezra is told the news of Israel's failure uh, to be set apart to God. So again, this is a really important thing for the people of Israel. Uh, this is kind of their their calling as a nation and what all of the laws and sacrifices kind of pinnacle to is that they will be a people special and set apart to God uh, that show the world what God is like um, by keeping his law and by trusting him. And uh, throughout their history, God uh, used both their belief and unbelief to show that he is a great God and the God of the people of Israel. And so you can probably think of a few of those times uh, off the top of your head. But here, the people have again uh, sinned, and uh, it's interesting that the news kind of travels secondhand to Ezra. I don't know if he uh, just hadn't been out and about since they got back, or uh, a thought I had about it was, are these the people who are already back in the land that have been doing this, or are these the ones that have come back with Ezra and have you know, within a couple months have done this. So it doesn't tell us who it is, um, but it could be, could be both. Yeah, Dale. Well, this is the hands of the princes and rulers. What does the hands mean? Does that mean the offspring of Mm-hmm. Or would that be the rulers themselves? Right. I assume there's some connection, direct connection to them. Mm-hmm. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. Yeah, maybe it's just a, a, like an emphasis thing, like, you know, they, they really did it. I don't know, Dale. That'd be something fun to look into. No, I, I, uh, I don't know. But yeah, that is part of the important thing, and part of Israel's issue over long periods of times is that the leadership, again and again, rejected God, didn't believe God, and led the people the wrong way by doing the wrong things themselves and stuff like that. Right, right. The, the morality kind of filters down uh, from 
those in leadership. Good. Uh, so now, after Ezra hears of this, again, he's not someone who just charges out into the, you know, the sunset with a plan. Uh, he mourns, and we're going to see uh, first his actions and then his words to the Lord. So that's your blanks there. Ezra mourns and confesses Israel's sin. And then I have the Nehemiah text there where Nehemiah is faced with a similar circumstance, and he tears out their hair instead. So, uh, but we won't take the time to read that this evening. And as we read uh, the second part especially where he's uh, confessing the sin uh, to God, notice how it's a corporate confession. So notice the, the pronouns. So he starts by saying I, and then he switches to R and we. Even though he hasn't participated in this, he as one of the leaders of Israel bears the weight and guilt of the people's sins. And then also notice uh, he doesn't request anything in this and he doesn't make excuses. He purely says, you know, you've shown us mercy even as a small remnant and we've sinned. And so he pretty much just kind of says everything that's true of what's happened in just talking to the Lord and telling him. So let's start reading in verse 3. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. So notice how he, he just kind of breaks. Um, it seems like he's being inactive, but I think his, his mourning is active. And this is something that I've wanted to grow in is like James talks about, you know, mourn and weep over your sin. And uh, I just personally, I know I don't have the thought process to do that. <laughs> so I think partially it begins with seeing my sin as God sees it. You know, we've uh, heard that type of thing before, but uh, you know, sin is repulsive. It's gross, and it's against God, and it should astonish us and uh, be awful in our eyes. So, I like verse four. It mentions that you know they tremble at the words of the God of Israel. So I think there's a sense of weightiness and understanding of you know we have broken the covenant with God, and. He throws in the part of, you know, the transgression of those who have been carried away captive. It's not that long ago that God sent him into captivity for doing this type of thing. Uh, so let's pick up in verse 5. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, O oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God. For your, sorry, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens since the days of our fathers to this day. We have been very guilty, and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation, as it is this day. 
And now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land which you are entering to possess it is an unclean land and with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to another with their impurity. Now, therefore, do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve, and have given us such deliver deliverance as this, should we not again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? So all throughout that, uh, Ezra is just confessing their sin and showing gratefulness that God has brought them back as a remnant. Um, but I think there's an aspect to his, uh, his words there that he recognizes that God can have another remnant. There's still Jewish people in other parts of the world that God could bring back. And so they're not that valuable <laughs> in the sense of like, God, we, we blew it again. Like, I understand if you want to find somebody else to do this. Uh, and then in verse 15, uh, Ezra recognizes God's righteousness and Israel's guilt. He says, O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. So Ezra just takes a really humble stance before the Lord, physically and spiritually, and confesses the sins of the nation to God. And he doesn't request that, that God would save them. He actually assumes that they deserve to be uh, punished for their sins. But I do appreciate in his confession of sin, I think we can learn from this, um, that you know, we don't need to make excuses. God knows that we're sinful people and that we sin. And we can just tell the Lord how we've sinned. And I do think it's good to ask for God's forgiveness. Uh, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Um, but I think Ezra's uh, stance towards sin is, is awesome, that he's disgusted um, by, by the sin of the people. I also think it's really cool how he, uh, he bears the guilt of others. So this is something we don't like to do. We like to distance ourselves from people who are shameful or, or guilty of something. We don't want to be associated with people who might bring us down, so to speak. But I think 
someone who recognizes the character of God, and especially for us, the gospel, that Jesus bore our shame and guilt, especially in the church, we have the opportunity to encourage one another and to bear one another's burdens, even to the point of others' shame and guilt over things, and to carry each other in this life, um, even in the mess of our sin. And not to leave each other there, but to say, you know, God knows what you've done. Confess it to him and repent and, and walk with him again. So I, I can think of several fun ways that this plays out. Um, I really like it with our greeters to, to kind of walk them through the, the embarrassment or shame that a new person feels when they come to a new church. So when, when someone first comes into our building, you know, they're just overwhelmed by where do I go? Who is this person talking to me? Oh no, I don't remember their name. You know, all these things that uh, could lead to them feeling embarrassed or ashamed um, instead of feeling, you know, the love and compassion that the gospel brings us to. And so, uh, you know, one of the most awkward things that happens with <coughs> someone newer is when you ask, oh, is this your first Sunday here? <laughs> and they're like, oh, I've been coming for six months. And you're like, oh. And then it just like stops. Like neither of you say anything. And it's like, great. You know, it's just this, this awkward gap. So a great way to ask that question is to say, uh, hey, my name's Ryan. I don't think I've met you yet. What's your name? And no matter how long they've been there, uh, I think we can step forward and kind of bear the embarrassment of that first greeting and then also get to know them and not shame them like they were invisible for the six months that they've been there or whatever. So even little things like that are, are helpful. Um, but there's lots of other ways that that plays out in a lot of uh, you know, more personal ways with people that we know better where uh, we can kind of bear, bear their shame and guilt. So, I don't know, one way that we try to do it as parents is like when a child wets themselves or goes to the bathroom. Like that's not a time to be rebuking your child. That's a time to kind of bear their shame for them and for them as a person to, you know, be able to recover from an embarrassing thing like that. Not that we're like, yeah, good job, but <laughs> you should do that every night. No. Uh, but just gentle, gentle, you know, like, it's okay, you know, accidents are okay, it's not your fault, and uh, that kind of thing where we can, we can care for each other and bear things that might be embarrassing for someone else. We can, we can take that upon ourselves because we're no, we know that we're secure in our relationship with Christ, and uh, yep, we can help out with those things. So that's chapter nine. Uh, yeah, my original point was that Ezra freaks out and like doesn't know what to do, but <laughs> but he does. He just kind of has this like he freezes in just the astonishment that here we are again. Like, have we not learned from what we've done before? And so, yeah. Any other thoughts on uh, chapter nine? Yeah. They do, I think. Yep. They don't. Do they not marry between each other? Yeah, I think. Um, I don't know as much today, but in the time of 
Jesus' life, they were still following the law-ish <laughs> in the ways that made them look good. And I'm sure there were some that were doing it well. And Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oftentimes they were scribes. So back in this day, lots of people didn't read. And so that was part of what the temple or synagogue did was it allowed one person who could read to read the scripture and for lots of people to be able to listen. Um, so what they do now? I think they, they still do that kind of thing. But now they, most people know how to read, and so they can read it for themselves. Uh, yeah, true, but you see the priests reading something. Right. Do they adhere to the New Testament? No, they don't. So they like um, all the Old Testament, and they'd probably even take the Apocrypha, uh, some of those books, the intertestamental, intertestamental books. Um, that talk about uh, like the Maccabees uh, wars and stuff like that because that's part of their history. But yep, Dell. For the last year, Linda's been helping out the little place over in South Des Moines where the house uh, and friends have started a learning center. Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of migrant kids hmm. who live in a housing development. And it's been really fascinating. I'm thinking about how. We think that people don't think differently or identify differently. But she's, they've had, they had a number of Afghans, Africans. They have a whole plethora of different nationalities hmm. that have fleeing to the States, and this is a place they're congregated. Yeah. Many of them don't know English. Mm -hmm. And so she's there helping them learn. Um, it's kind of an ad hoc learning center. Sure. Um, but she, she comes home. really good. Yeah, this is uh, random, but uh, I've been reading some early church history documents, and Christians were called atheists in the first century because they rejected the pagan gods. So it's just like a funny, like, <laughs> look at where we're at today. Like, I don't know, it's just interesting how the world changes. And Good. All right, let's go to chapter 10. So in chapter 10, 
Israel mourns their sin and renews the covenant. So in this chapter, we'll see uh, Ezra still uh, mourning and confessing. And then um, as we work down through it, this is the part where we see the, the guy from the crowd kind of shout out, here's what we should do. <laughs> and it was like, okay, let's do it. So let's read uh, one through four. Now, while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women and children gathered to him from Israel for the people wept very bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, we have trespassed against our God and have taken uh, pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them, according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. So the... The, the picture of what's happening here is Ezra is publicly mourning in front of the temple, which they've completed only recently. And uh, the people have gathered around him, uh, a crowd of people, and Shechaniah calls out and he's speaking directly to Ezra. Uh, I don't know if we classify it as a rebuke or recommendation <laughs> or what it might be, um, but he... He's calling on Ezra to act, to, to make a decision, to give the people a path forward of how to uh, renew their covenant with God. So he spoke there of, uh, in verse 3, let us make a covenant with our God. Uh, so I think we would kind of think of this as a covenant renewal because this was the covenant that Israel had with God, uh, was to keep the law. And so now that they've broken it, it's kind of a re-promise or a covenant renewal to, yes, now we will do that again. And again, the idea of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. So we had trembling uh, in chapter 9 in verse 4, and now uh, they're trembling at the commandment of God. And so again, I think amongst the people, there's this awareness that we've really messed up, and we know what God has done in the past when we have a people as a people have broken his covenant. Uh, so now in verses, uh, sorry, there's one through four, and then in verses five through nine, Ezra arises to delegate the call to covenant renewal and then withdraws to mourn. So here we'll see that he gets up in verse five. He he arises uh, to kind of get some guys ready to to go and take care of this, and then in verse six he's going to go off by himself again to mourn some more. So in verse 5, Then Ezra arose and made the leaders of the priests, the Levites, and all of Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word. So they swore an oath. So I don't think this is laziness on his part. I think he, he's doing a good job of delegating as a leader. Um, but I think he, at this point, is not ready in his own heart to face <laughs> uh, the people that, that have sinned and 
uh, he's still struggling with it himself. So in verse 6, Then Ezra rose up from before the house of the Lord and went into the chamber of Johanan, the son of Elishib. And when he came there, he ate no bread and drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. And they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem, and that whoever would not come within three days According to the instructions of the leaders and elders, all his property would be confiscated, and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity. So this is a pretty uh, strong encouragement or threat uh, for all the leaders. Um, how did it say it there? Yeah, for, for all the men to gather in Jerusalem within three days. So to not show up is to be excluded from being an Israelite anymore and to have all of your possessions taken from you. So I think everyone shows up <laughs> in verse uh, 9 here. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th of the month and all the people sat in the open square of the house of God trembling because of this matter and because of heavy rain. So here they are, they've gathered together, and again, they're, they're trembling. Uh, just imagine this, you know, being in a group of men that are all waiting to hear the pronouncement of God's ruling against them because they know that they've sinned. And, uh, about, uh, you know, on top of all that, it's raining heavily. So. <laughs> uh, so in verses 10 through 14, we'll see Israel call, or sorry, Ezra call Israel to repent and to be holy again, to be set apart to God. So in verse 10, Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have transgressed and have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore make confession to the Lord God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the lands and from the pagan wives. Then all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, Yes, as you have said, so we must do. But there are many people, uh, it is the season for heavy rain, and we are not able to stand outside. Nor is this the work of one or two days, for there are many of us who have transgressed in this matter. Please let the leaders of our entire assembly stand, and let all those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come at appointed times together with the elders and judges of, the, of their cities until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. So Ezra shares the law with them that they need to confess their sin to God and put away their pagan wives, and they agree to do that. They say, yes, uh, we will do all that you have said. They offer, um, I don't know if a compromise is the right word, but, you know, Ezra, it's raining right now. There's a lot of us. Maybe we can schedule when we come and take turns. So it's a good thing they did that because we'll see um, down here in a minute that it took them about three months uh, to go through all the people. Uh, so now in these next couple verses, uh, Ezra and the leaders judge all the men who married pagan wives. So in verse 15, only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikva opposed this, and Meshulam and the and 
Shabbatai, the Levite, gave them support. Then the descendants of the captivity did so, and Ezra, the priest, with certain heads of the father's households, were set apart by the father, uh, were set apart by the father's households, each of them by name. And they sat down on the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter. By the first day of the first month, they finished questioning all the men who had taken pagan wives. So it took them about two to three months to question all of these men, and they finally finished up there in verse 17. Uh, so now the book ends in a slightly awkward way or good way. I'm not quite sure how to say it. It lists uh, the, the heads of household of the families that repented. So it's kind of like a happy, happy thing um, because they did repent. So Ezra lists the men who repented of their sins. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's, I don't know, I don't fully know why, why he listed them. But we have the account of who they were. So the process it went through was he kind of named who they were, and then they gave promises uh, that they would put away their foreign wives, and then they would give a trespass offering. So they would give an offering to atone for their sins. Celeste, do you have something? Mm -hmm. Why is it okay for them to put away their wives? Because nowhere else is <clears throat> like, yes, they sin in marrying the wives, but like they're married now. And it says right. some of them had children. So like how is it okay for them to do that? Right. Yeah. Um, so we know from lots of places, but like Malachi two sixteen, God hates divorce. He doesn't you know, that's not part of his plan for the family that that would ever happen. Um, but I think, so Malachi is somewhat a contemporary of these people, the prophet Malachi, and all of chapter two about is written on marriage. And I think part of the issue of what was happening here is these men had actually, according to Malachi two, they were divorcing their Jewish wives to marry pagan wives. So there's a lot of complexity happening, uh, even beyond what, what they talk about here. Um, so this has been a problem for Israel. So you think, yeah, <laughs> you think about, uh, Abraham who sent, uh, Hagar away, right? So that would be a similar thing where, uh, yeah, he just sends her and her son out into the desert and they almost die. Um, but God preserves them. So we're not told what happens to them here. Hopefully, you know, they just went back to their country and their families and were okay, but we don't really know. And it's not said, like, that you should stay with them or whatever. So, I don't know, Celeste. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's, it's a good principle to keep in mind that the Bible talks about a lot of things that it's not condoning necessarily. So it may be condoning this, but just because the Bible says something, like it really did happen, it's true, but that doesn't mean that's the way we're supposed to live. So God expects discernment on our part to figure those things out and uh, work through those. Because there's some who would say that if the Bible doesn't condemn something, then that's 
okay. And it's like, you know, that's, <laughs> that's not how it works. Okay, does that kind of answer your question? We, we don't know, is, yeah, it doesn't say, is the bottom line. But um, I, in the spirit of how God cared for Hagar, I think God would have found a way to care for them too. Um, yeah, so let's read through uh, all the names. <laughs> we only have three minutes. So let's just read the first one here. So notice, uh, just as the news came to him that the priests uh, and the leaders were the ones who were kind of led off in the ones who were doing this, and then it filtered down to the others. So the priests start in their repentance. So in verse 18, and among the sons of the priests who had taken pagan wives, the following were found of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josadak and his brothers, Maaseah, Eliezer, Jerib, and Gedaliah. And they gave their promise that they would put away their, their wives and being guilty, they presented a ram of the flock as their trespass offering. So that's the process they went through is they recommitted their covenant promise uh, to say that in the way that we've broken it by taking these foreign wives, we will put them away. And then they gave sacrifice for it. Um, in verse 44, at the end there, it says, all these had taken pagan wives and some of them had wives by whom they had children. So again, we're not told what happens to them, but we do know that it had been going on long enough that they had kids from those marriages. So it couldn't have just been the people who had been there for six months. Yeah? Could it also be like married extra women? Like, you know, the Abraham thing where it's like, oh yeah, and I'll take her too. Yeah, the putting away in Hebrew is divorce. So you think of uh, Joseph, you know, he, he was minded to put her away privily in the King James. Uh, it just means... To, to break that covenant vow. Yeah. Linda's sister and brother-in-law have been in Zambia since 1992. Mm -hmm. And they've gotten out into the bush, bush. Yeah. And polygamy is rampant in that part of the world. Yeah. And in the early years they were there, I remember hearing about, and they happened to use a Jesus film, and they would have whole villages respond and they didn't have to be told that their polygamy was sin. Right. They knew it, and they were eager to repent. And th this question is one they dealt with. Right. What do you do to put them? And they realized that if they just put them away, that was a, a death sentence. Right. They, they wouldn't make so, it on their own. But they recognized it was sin. And so what they set out to do, and I'm not sure they were successful, was to encourage that there never be polygamy practice in those who have not ever married. Right. I don't know if they've been successful in that, but it was fascinating. They didn't have to be convinced it was sinful. Right. They were all living <clears throat> in the guilt of that sin. Mm-hmm. Recognize it was wrong. That's really good. Yeah, and... Um, the consequence would be death for many of the... Right, right. The system was designed to care for the other piece was that the men viewed the women as property. Sure. 
and the more women they had, the richer they were, and the less they didn't, which was an interesting twist mm -hmm. on it, too. Yep. Yeah, I wish uh, Ezra kind of explained what happened to them, but I assume that they did what was right and hopefully took care of them. So, sorry I don't have that answer. But um, Yeah, a few things, a few takeaways for us. Um, well, real quick, uh, I just wanted to mention about Ezra that he, he completed his mission. So, I know it, it looked kind of sad here, but his mission from Ezra 7.14 was to come to the promised land with the law in his hand and to expose what's wrong and lead towards what's right and lead the people in repentance. So even though it was rough for him and not super fun, he did his job actually pretty well. Uh, another thing to note is in Nehemiah chapter eight, Ezra, this Ezra pops up again. So I believe that's the context where they, they find part of the law again and the people come and listen to Ezra as he preaches. And it's a really cool text too to read through. Uh, we won't be doing Nehemiah next time, but maybe in, a, maybe in the spring or something. Uh, a few takeaways. So thinking through Ezra and the repentance he led the people in because of what he knew God's word to have said. God's word brings reform by highlighting evil works and by calling for holiness. So we should learn to be a people who tremble at the words of God. So we don't uh, have the same worry of the wrath and punishment that Israel was uh, fearing under their covenant promise because Christ has borne all of God's wrath in our place. So we will never experience the wrath or anger of God because Jesus did that for us. But we should tremble at the word of God. We should have a view of his word that is uh, weighty and that when we see, oh man, I have fallen short of what God's asked me to do, like that should affect us, um, even, even physically uh, to a point where we want to repent and follow the Lord. We must learn to confess our sin and to mourn over the grossness of our sin. So this is commanded by uh, James in James 4, 9. And yeah, that's something that, uh, at least I personally don't do well, that I want to grow in, that is part of the vocabulary of God's people from way back, that sin is gross and uh, it should bring me to my knees and make me weep. Um, it is right to repent of our sin. Um, so yeah, thinking through how, um, how we can help others who have either experienced sin, who maybe we're counseling, maybe they've been sinned against, or are struggling through how they're being affected by their own sin, uh, the first helpful step is almost always, you know, have you confessed that to the Lord? Have you told the Lord about it? Even if it's someone's sin against you, you know, have you told the Lord about what's happened? And uh, we can help others to respond to sin in confession and uh, and mourning over it, because even uh, we're often easily grossed out by other people's sin, <laughs> but not our own. And so learning to view our sin as God does is really helpful. 
Uh, unrepentant sinners are excluded and repentant sinners are restored. So this is uh, the thread of what happens in chapter 10 where those who repent are allowed to remain amongst the Israelites. And then this is true of us in the church today, that uh, when a brother or sister sins and we confront them and say, you know, have you, are, are you willing to repent of this and, and walk with the Lord? Uh, when they're willing to do that, they're, they're restored to the fellowship of the church. And when they, they say, no, I'd rather keep going on in my sin. I love my sin more than Christ, and I'm not going to repent of it. Then that's where we need to say, uh, you know, you're not acting like a believer. We love you. We're just not sure that you're a believer because believers repent of their sins. Um, and then we are called to live a set-apart uh, life to God as well. So we are commanded in First Peter, I think, to be holy as God is holy. And that doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect, but uh, we want to be growing in Christ-likeness. And that's part of the repentance is when we, when we don't show others what Jesus is like, how he's holy and how uh, what, what Christ is like, we need to say, sorry, what you saw, it was Ryan. <laughs> That's not what Jesus is like. My life is supposed to be a light to show you what Jesus is like. And so when I fail in that, I need to, to confess that to people and say, that anger you saw there, that wasn't from God. That was from my flesh. So we could be holy. Yeah, Sheila. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, when we get saved, we get God's Spirit, and hopefully the Spirit is producing His fruit in us so that people start to see that something other than Ryan is happening here. And uh, so, yeah, it'll show up in, in being a good example and things like that. And so, good. All right, I went over again. Sorry about that. Uh, I will pray, and then... If you have any questions or anything, let me know, but we'll be dismissed. Father God, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you for uh, your faithfulness. And thank you for the humility and repentance of Ezra and the people of Israel here. Help us to be a people who uh, see our sin as you see it and mourn over it and weep and repent and uh, walk with you again in faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.